A few months ago, a group of friends and I were at the Dancing Bear, a great little pub here in Waco, and we had an interesting conversation. After a while, the discussion turned to theology and, interestingly enough, the basis of theology. Not a normal discussion for a pub, I know, but it's more common than you'd think when you're right next to a major evangelical university. So my new Episcopalian friend was insisting that the church, the broad, expansive church throughout its history, had some measure of theological authority for Christians. That is, he claimed that church tradition was, in some sense, binding for Christians today. His claim was that the Holy Spirit was continually guiding the church, and that the Spirit would not let the church err too greatly or for too long. God wouldn't abandon God's church. Would God? Now, I had then and still have deep problems with this claim, and we argued late into the night, too late. Again, this is just what you do here in Waco. I made lots of arguments, I tried to counteract his arguments, but at the end of the day, I had an ace up my sleeve. I ultimately knew he was wrong, and I could prove it with a simple reference to my distant friend Athanasius. The traditional story of Athanasius' life is that he had single-handedly opposed Arius and Arianism, the worst heresy in the history of the church, at a time when the entire world was turning Arian. Athanasius alone stood up against the perversion of the Christian faith and earned a nickname for his constancy, Athanasius Contra Mundum, Athanasius Against the World. I felt sure that this reference to a man who stood against the broader tradition and is now seen to have been right was an irrefutable argument against my new Episcopalian friend's claim. The spirit wasn't guiding the church, at least in the sense that my friend claimed when the whole world awoke and found itself Arian. Athanasius alone rejected the church's broader witness and was sainted for it. There's a problem with this story, though. It's not quite true. Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley. And I'm Gerhard Steuben. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook to stay updated on our early church-themed memes. We've also opened a Patreon account, and we'd love for you to consider making a monthly donation of as little as $1 a month, up to however much you'd like to give to help us afford to have the time to keep making this podcast. Go to patreon.com slash podcasticapatristica for details. What are we drinking today, Tyler? Today we're drinking McClellan's Islay Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Its smoky taste is reminiscent of heretical book burnings. Also, as we all know, whiskey is the water of life, which is its actual name in Latin, aquavitae. Just like whiskey, today's saint's name means the living one, or more literally, the undying. Now, it's often asserted that Athanasius was called the Black Dwarf by his enemies. From what we can tell, this is a baseless claim made by a 19th century historian and perpetuated in Justo Gonzalez's The Story of Christianity. That's no slight on Gonzalez, though. Historians always base their work on other historians, hopefully also with reference to original texts, so it's no big fault that he kept a perhaps false and clearly interesting claim. I'm sure we perpetuate loads of alternative facts in these episodes as well, but hell, We're doing our best, and so was Husto. And, to be fair, Emperor Julian the Apostate did call Athanasius a, quote, little man. And Athanasius was from Egypt and thus was likely to be black, or at least very dark-skinned. That's worth noting in the Christianity of our Western world, where theology is whitewashed. Athanasius is one of the single most influential figures in Christian history, and he was a black man.
Athanasius was born around 297 CE, right at the end of the 3rd century. We don't know anything about his parents, but we do think that Athanasius probably had a relatively easy early life. I can't tell you what school Athanasius went to, or what teachers he studied under, but I can definitely tell you that he had some mighty fine schooling. Athanasius' skill with the quill was undeniable, and even Athanasius' earliest writings reveal a masterful prowess of the Greek language. So, Athanasius was a bright kid with a good education. One story that certainly isn't true, but is really fun, and apparently comes to us from the Latin Rufinus, I haven't been able to track the story down yet, but the sources I am finding seem credible enough. The story goes that Bishop Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria and apparently a regular feature of this podcast, had invited a bunch of other important church leaders to a breakfast in Alexandria on the feast day of St. Peter. While Alexander was waiting for them to arrive, he went and stood by the basilica window to watch the outside world, and the child Athanasius happened to be playing out in the courtyard with a number of other children. Some of the children were pagans, and others were Christians, and the Christians decided that they would play church. All of the Christian children then decided that Athanasius would be their bishop, and Athanasius began to baptize the pagan children who were playing with them. Alexander looked out the window in disbelief, amazed at what he had seen, and ran outside to inform Athanasius that the baptisms were actually valid. Athanasius had modeled the actions of priests he had seen so precisely, and repeated the words that he heard so exactly, that the pagan children had been legitimately baptized by him. Alexander then invited the boys, especially Athanasius, to consider becoming Christian ministers when they grew up. Athanasius, as fate would have it, eventually became a deacon to Alexander in the Church of Alexandria, and would one day succeed him as bishop over the all-important city. Returning to reality, Athanasius was ordained a deacon in 319 by that same Alexander. Alexander would become Athanasius' mentor, Athanasius' hero, and ultimately Athanasius' predecessor in the bishop's seat in Alexandria. But first, of course, Athanasius had to begin by serving as a lowly deacon under the great Alexander. This was a turbulent time for the church in Alexandria as you may remember if you listened to episode 5 on Arius. The outbreak of the Arian controversy, a fight that would absorb almost all of Athanasius' life and his prodigious works, began only a year earlier in 318. Controversy was raging in the first years of Athanasius' ministry, and it all came to a peak seven years later at the Council of Nicaea. During those seven years, Athanasius was mentored and guided by Alexander, and learned the ways of church politics from his older and wiser friend. And, as we might expect, Alexander put Athanasius' genius-level talents at writing to good use during that time. One of the most memorable ways that Athanasius served the church at Alexandria during his years as a deacon is his writing of a very important letter. In the ancient world, Just like in our modern world, high-status people often had secretaries who drafted letters for them. My wife is a graduate assistant for one of the professors at the seminary we attend, and she drafts emails for him all the time. He will tell her basically what he wants to say, let her write out the content, and then sign his name at the bottom. Her words then become his words, right when he approves of them. The same thing happened with Athanasius and Alexander. As a deacon in Alexander's church and Alexander's assistant, Athanasius would have drafted Alexander's letters before Alexander approved them and sent them out with his authority. One particular letter has survived to today and has been hugely influential in modern reconstructions of the early Arian controversy. This letter is called Alexander's Encyclical, 
and it is Alexander's letter to all of the churches in the ancient Roman world, informing them that he is excommunicated an obstinate and heretical old priest named Arius. In that very same year that Athanasius was ordained deacon, in 319, he drafted this seven-ish page encyclical. The letter explained Arius's heretical teachings, gave the names of about a hundred church leaders who affirmed Alexander's decision, and warned the Roman world that Arius was beginning to incite controversy and schism by dragging other bishops into the fray. If you want to know more about the letter, you can either listen to our episode 5 on Arius, which depends somewhat heavily on the letter, or you can read it for yourself soon in our new book, Arius in His Own Words. In it, Tyler and I have collected all of Arius' surviving writings and correspondence, translated them, and put them alongside the original Greek text. Be looking for that to come out at the end of the summer. But for now, back to Athanasius. Athanasius served as a deacon in the Church of Alexandria for something like nine years, and then was elected Bishop of Alexandria when his mentor Alexander died. Tradition tells us that both the clergy and the people of Alexandria clamored for Athanasius to become their new bishop, but Athanasius refused the honor because of the seriousness and importance of the task. The Alexandrians insisted, though, that Athanasius was the person they wanted to lead them, and so he finally consented to their wishes. Around five months after his mentor had died, Athanasius was summoned to carry his baton and lead the church he loved. Athanasius was only 30 years old when he became the Bishop of Alexandria, and while the immensity of the task might not strike you immediately, I assure you that it was a huge burden for the young but talented churchman. As we have mentioned on previous episodes, the Bishop of Alexandria was one of the most important people in the entire Christian world, and was certainly one of the most powerful. It was at Alexandria, not at Rome, that the bishop was first called the Pope. Imagine a world where the Catholic Church had not one Pope, but maybe five or six, each with an equal amount of authority, but together ruling over the entire Christian Church. Or, for those of you who know about Eastern Orthodoxy, imagine that there were only five or six patriarchs over the entire Christian Church. Athanasius was one of those five or six. In fact, Athanasius was the head of perhaps the largest and most important of those five or six. Now do you see why Athanasius, at merely 30 years old, might have wanted to avoid that responsibility? But, as I've mentioned, Athanasius didn't get his way. In 328, Athanasius was appointed the Bishop of Alexandria, perhaps the greatest city in both ancient Christendom and ancient Rome generally. As you might expect, Athanasius rose to the challenge and became as able a bishop as he was a deacon and a letter drafter. Tyler found this quote from Edward Gibbons, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and we both think it captures the essence of Athanasius's career as a bishop. Amidst the storms of persecution, the Archbishop of Alexandria was patient of labor, jealous of fame, careless of safety. And although his mind was tainted with the contagion of fanaticism, Athanasius displayed superiority of character and abilities, which would have qualified him, far better than the degenerate sons of Constantine, for the government of a great monarchy. Although Athanasius came to be known as the hero of orthodoxy, the pillar of virtue and commitment, he had quite a different reputation in his own time, especially among the eastern, Arian-leaning bishops against whom he made war. Timothy Barnes says that Athanasius organized an ecclesiastical mafia, and that he had a power independent of the emperor which he built up and perpetuated by violence. Barnes goes on to say that, quote, like a modern gangster, he evoked widespread mistrust, proclaimed total innocence, and usually succeeded in evading conviction on specific charges. 
Athanasius was exiled five times. Five times. Unlike other bishops, Athanasius wasn't exiled for heresy, though, but for disruption. In our episode on Constantine, we mentioned that the single most important thing to the emperor was unity. Athanasius repeatedly threatened the unity of the church by campaigning against the bishops who were sympathetic to Arius. Athanasius was relentless. Now, that quote from Timothy Barnes is pretty harsh, but it's nothing that most of the Eastern bishops wouldn't have said. Some Miletians accused Athanasius of violence, of breaking a sacred chalice, of interfering with the imperial grain supply in Egypt, of treason, and even of murder and sorcery. Well, it turns out that he didn't actually murder anyone, but it's still a great story. Some of the bishops who hated Athanasius hatched a plan to get rid of him once and for all. They got a guy named Arsenius, a bishop who was already in trouble, to fake his own death, and then they spread the rumor that Athanasius had murdered Arsenius and severed his arm to use for sorcery. Athanasius was having a hard time proving these rumors to be false, so he decided to go find Arsenius for himself. He did some investigating and found some monks who finally told him where he could find Arsenius. Athanasius eventually went to court to be tried before the Council of Bishops for this and other accusations. Socrates tells us what happened there. Arsenius, on being apprehended, at first denied that he was the person, but Paul, Bishop of Tyre, who had formerly known him, established his identity. Divine Providence, having thus disposed matters, Athanasius was shortly after summoned by the Synod, and as soon as he presented himself, his accusers exhibited the severed arm and pressed their charge. He managed the affair with great prudence, for he inquired of those present as well as of his accusers who were the persons who knew Arsenius, and several having answered that they knew him, he caused Arsenius to be introduced having his hands covered by the cloak. Then he asked again, Is this the person who has lost a hand? All were astonished at the unexpectedness of this procedure, except those who knew from where the hand had been cut off. For the rest thought that Arsenius was really deficient of a hand, and expected that the accused would make his defense in some other way. But Athanasius, turning back the cloak of Arsenius on one side, showed one of the man's hands. Again, while some were supposing that the other hand was wanting, permitting them to remain a short time in doubt. Afterward, he turned back the cloak on the other side and exposed the other hand. Then, addressing himself to those present, he said, Arsenius, as you see, is found to have two hands. Let my accusers show the place whence his third was cut off. Okay. So he didn't murder anyone, or sever their limbs to use for magic, which I'd really like to know what kind of magic they said he was doing. But what about the other stuff? Is Timothy Barnes right about Athanasius, the mob boss? It's kind of hard to tell. The accusations about the grain supply seems unlikely, but there's really not enough evidence to say one way or the other. The issue with the sacred chalice is a bit complicated, and it's the accusation that Athanasius could never really shake. This is where the mob boss characterization seems fitting. One of the bishops under Athanasius's authority was accused of breaking into the church of a bishop named Iscurus, ransacking his church and breaking their chalice, which was used for the Eucharist. Athanasius never denies the accusations. The defense he gives is that Iscurus was not a true bishop, because he was ordained by a heretic. R.P.C. Hansen, the historian, says, quote, In short, his opponents cried, Violence and sacrilege! And Athanasius replies, No, only violence. Attitudes toward Athanasius and scholarship are a bit bipolar. Throughout history, people have revered him, 
but in the mid-20th century they started to be overly critical, and now the pendulum has swung in favor of him yet again. He was a complex man, living in a complex time, so it's hard to really separate truth from fiction. I think it's fair to say that Athanasius was a savvy politician who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. After all, he wasn't exiled five times for nothing. But was he a violent, conniving mob boss? Maybe I'm just soft on him because he's a hero of the faith, but that seems overdramatic. He was definitely not the picture of perfect piety that our tradition has created, though. And while he may not have been an actual murderer, he was a rhetorical serial killer, slandering and slaughtering his enemies with his words. Earlier, Gerhard mentioned that Athanasius earned himself the nickname Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. St. Jerome wrote in his witty and dramatic prose that one day the world woke up and groaned to find itself Arian. To say Athanasius Contramundum is to praise Athanasius for being the only orthodox person in a sea of heretics. And the problem is that this is just not true. Athanasius wasn't a victim of the evil Arians. In fact, most of the people that Athanasius fought against were bishops who had signed the Nicene Creed. And those bishops were actively seeking ways to make the creed better, to find language that everyone could agree on. Athanasius was only against the world because he made the world his enemy. Nowhere is this more apparent than in his writings against the Arians. Athanasius wrote a lot about the Arians. Three of his most well-known works are explicitly anti-Arian. His Orations Against the Arians, The History of the Arians, and one called On the Synods of Ariminum and Seleucia, which contains a bunch of the creeds written by so-called Arian bishops. That last one is really important for understanding the theology of the bishops who supported Arius. But Athanasius's entire career was mostly spent fighting Arianism. But here's the thing. There was no such thing as an Arian. You may remember this from our episode on Arius, but Arius wasn't really all that important to the Arian controversies. The bishops who supported Arius weren't so much interested in embracing his theology as they were concerned with allowing his theology to be considered within the bounds of orthodoxy. Like I said, most of the people Athanasius fought signed the Nicene Creed, but they still thought its language was problematic, especially the word homoousios. They all confessed explicitly that they did not follow Arius, and even denounced the beliefs that were associated with him, such as that the word came from nothing, and that there was a time when the word was not. So, when Arius wasn't around anymore, Athanasius found a new target on whom to pin everything. There was a bishop from Nicomedia named Eusebius, not the church historian you've probably heard of, and Eusebius was sympathetic to Arius. He was just as good, probably better, a politician than Athanasius. He was smart and knew how to win people over. He had most of the bishops from the East on his side when it came to getting rid of the word homoousios from the creed. And Athanasius describes Eusebius in the same way Timothy Barnes described Athanasius, that he was a mob boss with a bunch of cronies. Athanasius and some of the later church historians liked to talk about hoi peri Eusebion, or those around Eusebius. And some modern translators have put it even more entertainingly, the Eusebian gang. If anything happened bad to Athanasius, or if any bad theology needed to be shut down, he blamed it on the Eusebian gang. So, when you read Athanasius' works on Arianism, you have to be careful. He, like everyone else, used rhetoric as a sword. He wanted his words to do the work of an executioner. 
That's not to say everything he writes is bad or unhelpful. He still gives us some really great insights into the Aryan controversies. And, as I'll explain a bit later, some of his other writings are far more important and far more inspiring. On May 2nd, 373, Athanasius died peacefully in the city that he loved, having served the church at Alexandria for almost 60 years, 20 of those years being time spent in exile. Athanasius didn't live to see the very end of the Arian controversy, which was finally settled in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, but he perhaps more than anyone pushed the church towards that decisive conclusion. Beyond 381, though, Athanasius has been received by the church as one of the most important and loved figures in the history of Christianity. His first and greatest admirer was Gregory Nazianzus, who gave a eulogy on the soon-to-be saint on the seventh anniversary of his death. This speech, which is about 30 pages long, would become the first in a long history of celebrations of the man who would become the very face of the church itself. John Baer says about Gregory's speech, Thus, on the eve of the Council of Constantinople, Athanasius was canonized and an image of him enshrined that portrayed him as a steadfast saint, a model pastor, and an unerring theologian, whose very name was synonymous with orthodoxy. When St. Athanasius died, he was buried in Alexandria, the city which practically worshipped him. Unfortunately, though, in 855, Pope Benedict III of Rome transported Athanasius's remains from his home city to a church in Venice, Italy, La Chiesa di San Zaccaria. His body remains in Venice to the present day. One of his relics, though, was given to the Coptic Patriarch Shenouda III in 1973 by Pope Paul VI. This man, whose body is now distributed around the world, has also spread his undying influence to every corner of Christendom. This saint, now venerated by everyone but modern academics, has proved as immortal as his name had promised. Athanasius, the Undying One. As I said a moment ago, not all of Athanasius's works were replete with polemic and slander. Here I want to talk to you about a few of his most important and most influential works. Egypt was extremely important in the development of monasticism. In the late 4th century, Christians began traveling into the surrounding desert to live in caves in solitude and simplicity where they could remove all the trappings of this materialistic and unspiritual life. Some monks lived in monastic communities. An Egyptian named Pacomius invented this form of monasticism. It's called Cenobitic monasticism. The role of Pacomius, a sort of guide for living in the community, is actually one of the most important documents for monasticism and is still used in Coptic monasteries today. Other monks lived as hermits, following the example of the man we know as the father of monasticism, Antony the Great. Antony lived an extraordinary life. He lost his parents as a child and had to raise his baby sister. He traded his life in the city to live alone in the desert. It was his remarkable devotion that inspired scores of believers to live in such devotion to God that their spiritual lives took complete precedence over their physical lives. If you listen to our episode on Origen, you may remember how he did his best to live simply, having one set of clothes and no shoes, eating only enough to survive. And remember, Origen was also an Egyptian. Antony made that kind of asceticism look like child's play. He was so ashamed of participating in physical reality that if he ever had a meal with other people, he would take his food somewhere else and eat it alone. But Antony wasn't just a hermit. Antony was a demon fighter. It wasn't uncommon for demons to appear before him in the form of other monks or beautiful women or animals or monsters. Sometimes they would even physically beat him. 
I really want to keep talking about the amazing life of Antony, but for one thing, I plan on doing a mini-episode on him soon, and for another thing, this is an episode about Athanasius. So, why is Antony important for this episode? Because Athanasius is the main reason we know so much about him. Athanasius's third exile was spent on the run from the imperial authorities. As we already mentioned, Athanasius was a good politician, able to make connections and use relationships to further his cause. He was deeply influential in the monastic communities. He helped steer them away from Arian inclinations, and he garnered their support. He hid among the monks and virgins for six years, from 356 to 362. It was during that time that he wrote some of his most important works, including his History of the Arians and a biography of Antony's life, creatively entitled The Life of Antony. It's a pretty short read, only about 70 pages long, but it's full of tales about Antony's life and speeches that he gave to his fellow monks about how to recognize and defeat evil spirits and how to overcome temptation. In the post-Enlightenment world of the West, we tend to be a bit cynical, if not outright hostile, toward talk of spiritual beings. It's mostly in Pentecostal circles that you hear discussion of spiritual warfare, and Pentecostalism is often marginalized as a sort of lunatic fringe within Western Protestant Christianity, though it is the most rapidly growing group of Christians in the world. All that to say, the life of Antony is not super well known in our context. If you've heard of Athanasius, you've probably heard of his On the Incarnation, and maybe about some of his writings against the Arians. But his biography of Antony was his most influential work. It spread Antony's influence even farther and inspired more people to join the army of monks. In his Confessions, St. Augustine tells the story of how a man named Pontitianus told him the story of Antony, and he also related how two of the emperor's aides stumbled upon Athanasius's book. While one of them read it, he turned to the other and said, Tell me, what would we attain by all these labors of ours? At what do we aim? For what do we serve? Can our hopes in court rise higher than to be the emperor's favorites? But if I could become a friend of God, I could do it right now. After reading that little book, they both traded the life of glory, of rubbing elbows with the emperor, and became monks. In addition to his life of Antony, Athanasius wrote numerous ascetic works, including a couple of letters to the virgins, a treatise on virginity, and we have some fragments of pieces he wrote on morality. Athanasius is primarily known for his rigid and unyielding commitment to the Nicene faith, and for his complex and dogmatic philosophical works. But we shouldn't forget about the ascetic aspect of his life and writings. Not only will that help us to better understand who Athanasius was, but it might just help us learn how to be more virtuous and less materialistic. And here, I have to reiterate something that we said in our first episode. There's a reason that Christians have preserved these writings for nearly 2,000 years. Of course, there's no problem with reading the latest books by your favorite pastors and Christian leaders, but most of the time, those books will be forgotten in a few years. As C.S. Lewis said, for every new book we read, we should read at least two old books. So, maybe when you're trying to learn simplicity, to become less materialistic, don't just read David Platt's Radical, which had a lasting influence of about two years. Add to that the life of Antony and the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which has had almost 2,000 years of influence. And it just may be that you can learn something from them. Who knows, you may even find yourself living in a cave, fighting demons, and talking to centaurs. Oh yeah, that's also a thing that happened to Antony. You'll have to wait for that episode to hear about Antony's encounter with mythical creatures. Athanasius is most well known in theological circles 
for De Incarnatione, or On the Incarnation. But On the Incarnation is actually volume two of an apologetic work that he wrote. Volume one is called Contra Gentes, most often translated into English as Against the Pagans. We aren't exactly sure when Athanasius wrote these works. Some think it was before the Arian controversy, since Athanasius doesn't mention Arius at all. But Athanasius also doesn't mention Nicaea for about a decade after that happened. So that argument isn't incredibly convincing. It's possible that he wrote it during his first exile. A few scholars have argued that he wrote it shortly after becoming bishop, so in the late 320s or early 330s. Your guess is as good as mine, so pick whichever date you want. Truth is relative. As I just said, these works are apologetic, which means that they're a defense of the Christian faith. Athanasius opens against the pagans by saying that, quote, For if the pagans had really applied their minds to his divinity, they would not have mocked at so great a thing, but would rather have recognized that he was the savior of the universe and that the cross was not the ruin, but the healing of creation. For if, after the cross, all idolatry has been overthrown, and all demonic activity is put to flight by this sign, and Christ alone is worshipped, and through him the Father is known, and opponents are put to shame while every day invisibly converts their souls, how then, one might reasonably ask them, is this matter still to be considered in human terms? And should not one rather confess that he who ascended to the cross is the word of God and the savior of the universe? So Athanasius's goal in these works is to show how the one who ascended the cross is the word of God. In this work, he details the perversity of idolatry. And idolatry is not simply the refusal to worship God, but the refusal to be completely human, to be as God intended. According to Athanasius, God created all things through his word, and we were made in turn to contemplate the word, the image of God, and through him to see the Father. But evil prevents us from contemplating the word. Therefore, he writes, So purity of soul is sufficient to reflect and behold through itself God. As the Lord himself said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yet, here Athanasius holds a tension between what we might call God's transcendence and his eminence. That is, on the one hand, God is so utterly transcendent that we cannot comprehend him. On the other hand, he makes himself known to us and makes a way for us to know him. Athanasius goes on to write, quote, In this way, as has been said, did the Creator fashion the human race, and such did he wish it to remain. But men, contemptuous of the better things and shrinking from their apprehension, sought rather what was closer to themselves. And what was closer to themselves was the body and its sensations. So they turned their minds away from intelligible reality and began to consider themselves. And by considering themselves, and holding to the body and the other senses, and deceived, as it were, in their own things, they fell into desire for themselves, preferring their own things to the contemplation of divine things. You can see the ascetic influence in those lines. It sounds very monastic, even dualistic. It seems like he's saying that the body is evil, and that we need to escape it. But that's not what he's saying. He believes that God made creation good, including humans with their bodies. The problem isn't that we have bodies. The problem is that we've made our bodies into our gods. This is all pretty straightforward biblical language. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 says, For many live, about whom I have often told you, and now with tears, I tell you that they are enemies of the cross, of Christ. Their end is destruction, their god is the belly, they exult in their shame and they think about earthly things. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Isn't there more to life than food, and more to the body than clothing? This, Athanasius says, is the origin of idolatry. And remember, the point of this two-volume work is to show that the one who ascended the cross is the word of God. This defense of the Christian message cannot be separated from how we discuss creation and human nature and sin. Because ultimately, the question is, if Jesus is God, why did he die on the cross? Athanasius gets more into this question in On the Incarnation, where he wrote one of his most famous lines, He became man so that we might become God. On the Incarnation, the second part of Athanasius's project, is not quite what we might expect for a book dedicated to the subject of the Incarnation. Especially since the Council of Chalcedon, where the Church debated Jesus' nature, whether he was fully God and fully man, how the virgin birth happened, whether the Word replaced the human soul, whether the divine will replaced the human will, etc. After Chalcedon, discussion on the Incarnation has mostly been about those questions. But Athanasius says almost nothing about the virgin birth. He also spends very little time talking about what Jesus did as a human. Athanasius is concerned with how Christians are mocked, not simply for believing that God became a human, but for believing that this God became a human and was then crucified. A God that could be so degraded was not worthy of worship. But the incarnation for Athanasius is the glorious degradation of the Almighty God. It is on the cross that the incarnation is most manifest. Those who mock Christians for believing in a crucified God unknowingly make him even more exalted. Athanasius writes, quote, For the more he is mocked by unbelievers, the greater witness he provides of his divinity. Because what men cannot understand as impossible, he shows to be possible. And what men mock as unsuitable, by his goodness he renders suitable. And what quibbling men laugh at as human, by his power he shows to be divine. Overthrowing the illusion of idols by his apparent degradation through the cross, and invisibly persuading those who mock and do not believe to recognize his divinity and power. He also ties this conversation back into creation and human nature, as he did in Against the Pagans. He explains that humans were created in the image of God, which for Athanasius means that we are something like platonic shadows of the word of God, who is the form. So, to be made in the image of God is to be rational. And to be rational is not simply to be self-conscious or to be intelligent, but to conform to the word of God. To be created by God and sustained by the word of God is a tremendously good gift. To be made in the image of the word is an extra grace, Athanasius says. But, as Uncle Ben taught us, great power comes with great responsibility. Creation passively receives God's governance. It is in total conformity to his will. And we're talking about paradise right now, before humans sinned. But humans are different. I love the way John Baer talks about this. And, side note, most of what I'm saying is what I learned by reading his amazing two-part series on the Nicene faith. If you buy any books about the early church, buy those. Look in the episode notes on our website for information on that. John Baer says that, for Athanasius, humans receive God's governments in a different way than the rest of creation. While everything else passively receives it, humans have free will, so they must actively receive it. As Khaled Anatolios puts it, Humanity's special position is that of being ordained to actively maintain its own passivity.
As I already mentioned, Athanasius believes that our sole focus must be on the word, because that's what it means to be truly rational, to be truly human, which is paradoxically to also be divine. God knew that giving us free will meant that we had the potential to turn away, so he gave us yet another grace, the law. Again, we're still talking about pre-sin paradise. Athanasius writes, quote, God brought Adam and Eve into his paradise and gave them a law, so that if they guarded the grace and remained good, they would enjoy the life of paradise, without sorrow, pain, or care, besides having the promise of immortality in heaven. But that if they transgressed and turned away and became wicked, they would know what it is themselves to endure the natural corruption of death, and would no longer live in paradise, but in future dying outside it, would remain in death and corruption. So, paradise and the rules given in paradise were a sort of added motivations for humans to keep their eyes focused on their creator. God wanted humans to do the right thing, but he also wanted them to have the choice. And in order for there to be a choice, there has to be the possibility for choosing the wrong thing. But God gave grace upon grace in order to persuade not to coerce humans to remain good. Athanasius sounds a bit like an open theist, doesn't he, Gerhard? Now, what's all this got to do with the Incarnation? Athanasius answers by posing a deeply troubling, beautiful, and controversial question. Quote, Since humans had to become so irrational and the deceit of evil spirits was casting such a wide shadow everywhere and hiding the knowledge of the true God. What was God to do? Be silent before such things, and let humans be deceived by demons and by being ignorant of God? But then what need would there have been for the human to have been created in the image from the beginning? For he should have been made simply irrational, or else, having been created rational, he should not live the life of irrational creatures, that is, as embodied beings. This is extremely important to understand. Remember, to be human is to be rational, and to be in constant meditation on the Word of God. Humans sinned when they took their eyes off of the Word and began focusing on their own bodies. So, Athanasius says, if God is just going to let humans die without knowledge of himself, he shouldn't have made us this way in the first place. He should have made us irrational like the animals. Or, if he wanted us to be rational, he shouldn't have given us bodies, so we would have never turned our attention away from the word in the first place. So, what is God to do? He wants humans to know him, and yet we have no way of seeing God due to our sinfulness. The word of God is the only way for us to know and see God. So the word became flesh. Not only that, but the word became flesh and conquered sin and death in order to lift the veil that prevented us from seeing God. Athanasius says, quote, For by the sacrifice of his own body, he put an end to the law that lay against us and renewed for us the origin of life by giving hope of the resurrection. For since it was from humans that death prevailed against humans, so for this reason, conversely, by the incarnation of God has come about the destruction of death and the resurrection of life. As the man who bore Christ says, since by man came death, so by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For now, no longer as condemned do we die, but as those who will rise again, we await the general resurrection of all, which God who has wrought and bestowed it will reveal in his own time. This, therefore, is the primary cause of the incarnation of the Savior.
At the beginning of this episode, I told the story of my argument with a friend about Christian tradition, authority, and the Spirit's role in guiding the church. Athanasius, the man who fought the whole world, was the ace up my rhetorical sleeve. But, having listened to this podcast, was my invocation of the saint valid? When I think back on that conversation, I haven't changed my mind theologically, but I have changed my tactics. Athanasius wasn't quite as against the world as I'd early presumed, whereas he is remembered by almost everyone today. He certainly fought half the world, the eastern half of the Christian church who were largely Arian sympathizers, but that's different than the mythology which surrounds the man. I don't mean to denigrate this saint, this hero, though. I love Athanasius. I highly respect the man and his work, and we want you to love him too. That's why we spend the hours it takes to put out each podcast. Even though the typical picture of Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, doesn't stand, his place at the center of the Christian tradition definitely does. So, we hope we've helped you understand and appreciate the beautiful, complicated, and sometimes troubling story of Athanasius, the black dwarf at the center of the traditional Christian faith. And, in the words of Barnabas, farewell, children of love and peace. The Lord of grace and all glory be with your spirit. Amen.